Hanford Woods and Eric Carpelles, welcome to the new school. Hanford, you've been uh, teaching uh, Shakespeare in Montreal for many years, and uh, I know Shakespeare is very central to your life. Our, our topic tonight is reading um, uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet and Tolstoy's What is Art? Um, but let's start with Shakespeare and let's start with Hamlet. And I just wondered, as a sort of introduction to the conversation, could you give us a piece of Hamlet that you know by heart and just touches you deeply? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I, I guess it'll be brief. Um, uh, it's right at the end of the play. It's one of my favorite lines and it sums a whole bunch of things and it goes um, I'll set the situation for you it's um, Hamlet is is dying and um, he's uh, he's worried about his reputation you know this the nice thing about Hamlet is that it's all about human vanity and nothing else and um, and he wants Horatio his friend to um, to remain on the planet and tell the story and get the word out about why he did what he did, and um, Hamlet or and Horatio says no, he's he's ready to his life is over if Hamlet's life is over, and he says something to the effect that I am more uh, antique Roman than Dane, which is that's well that's I'm more of a pagan than a Christian is really the way I read that. And Hamlet gets furious at him, and they have a, actually have a little scuffle over the, the, the poison that, that Horatio has in his hand. And, uh, and he gets very sort of peremptory with, with um, Horatio and tells him that he's not allowed, he's not allowed to kill himself. <clears throat> and I don't know, the, I take it everyone here has some familiarity with the play, and, and a big theme in the play, of course, is, is suicide. And uh, so Hamlet, his, his, he, he says by way of, of getting Horatio to do what he wants him to do, but at the same time, um, you know, giving him a little bit of a, a pill, you know, a little sugar coating to the pill, he says, absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. And I've always loved those lines, and I, uh, they accord with, I don't know, a fairly dismal side of my own spirit that thinks that probably, you know, you're better off dead than alive. But <laughs> so anyway, that's, so that, I mean, that's what I can give you right off the bat here, you know. So absent thee from, from felicity. From felicity a while. In other words, yeah, I can understand why you want to kill yourself but absent thee from felicity a while. So, uh, you know, I know you're going to be happy when you're dead, but, but you've got this job to do. He says, what a, what a wounded name, things standing thus, I leave behind me. And, uh, you know, if, because nobody other than Horatio knows the truth of the story, knows about the ghost and knows about the murder of, the, the, um, of Hamlet Sr. And uh, there's an interesting point right before that when Hamlet, you know, goes after the king and there's, it's sheer chaos 
and people don't really know what's going on and and people are yelling treason and there's always been a sort of debate as to whether people have gotten hip to the fact that the king is the treacherous one and 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 or is it Hamlet who is actually taking arms against the lawful king so that yeah so he's so Hamlet's I mean the odds again this is all part of a way I have of reading this play um, that it is so intensely human and the the desire for things human and in the play sort of posed against um, the possibility the religious possibilities uh, all that's on Hamlet's mind is this world you know this not the next so that absent thee from felicity a while don't, you know just you're going to be happy when you die and, and then this beautiful, and, and if it's done well by good actors, um, there's a way in which the whole thing can be said so that it really stretches your ability to say it, so that by the end of it, you're out of breath. And so absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world, draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. Mm. You know. He has a couple more lines after that. But. <laughs> but at other points in the play, Hamlet's not so sure that death brings felicity. Uh, That's right. To sleep, perchance to, to dream. dream. Yeah. And then, the, aye, there's the rug, yeah. right? That yeah. there, And that, yeah. what are the lines about, uh, uh, we, the one about uh, we've, essentially that we're more comfortable with the things we know than the unknown yeah, yeah, things. From, that, yeah, right. That's what keeps us alive. Yeah, and the to be or not to be. Yeah, that's, right. you know, which, of course... Anyone who teaches Shakespeare should have that thing memorized. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the point but, is that, that here, here absentee from yeah. Felicity a while at the yeah. end, and yet earlier on, yeah, no, not he's, being certain yeah, whether death has, brings yeah, Felicity or you not. No, exactly. He yeah. says, I mean, the reason why you don't commit suicide back there in that part of the play mm -hmm. is because, in fact, you might be going to something worse. Mm -hmm. you know, so. so how do we hold these endless antinomies or contradictions yeah. uh, not only within the play as a whole but within Hamlet himself? Um, good question. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I see a resolution of it I mean, I, I see a re resolution of it in terms of the religious orthodoxy and I think that Shakespeare's kind of taking that on and, and that he sneaked in a kind of pagan view of things. So I think that's one resolution of it. I think Shakespeare, my overriding view of Shakespeare is, has been ever since I kind of, you know, took it upon myself to s study this stuff in the way that I do, is that he's a man without beliefs, you know, so that, and he can be very, very careless of the, of the articulation of the beliefs in a play. I would say that there's a brooding in Hamlet about suicide and about the meaning of life and the value of life. I mean, for sure, um, that he throws out different formulations of it and decides that, you know, that say that at that point in the play, Hamlet decides that he's not about to kill himself. I mean, re you know that, well, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. That's his first soliloquy and it begins with a desire not to be alive you know that, that 
So that's a kind of an overriding, gloomy feature of the play. Uh, it's, it's such an astonishing play that way, I mean, in the sense that it is so um, dreary in some way, but it's also so utterly alive and just got so many elements and so many things going off in it. And, you know, if it's well, I saw a wonderful performance of it in Quebec about two or three months ago in French, done by six, you know, 23-year-olds. Uh, they reduced this thing in a certain way, but they, man, they did the whole thing, and it was the energy of the thing and the and the passion of it. It was very comical, although they would occasionally just drop you dead with some of the serious stuff. And uh, so it's uh, it, it. I mean, and I think that is one of the amazing beauties of Shakespeare. In that period of Shakespeare, there's a series of plays, Hamlet being kind of the, the lead-off, and then he does, um, I mean, there's some debate as to the order of these things, but uh, uh, Troilus and Cressida, All's Well That Ends Well, and Measure for Measure, and they're all really very unhappy plays. I mean, there's a, a great deal of, of uh, I think, something like a depression in them, and yet, you know, they have this, I, I think Shakespeare's an amazing writer for the capacity, apparently, I mean, who knows, to write through a life crisis and continue to produce spectacular drama, uh, but that at the same time is not in any way uh, concealing a very, very uh, bitter and depressed feeling. Now, when you say write through a life crisis, are you describing the death of his son, one of his twins at age 11, and the hypothesis that I, I, I started... I mean, that could be it. I yeah. mean, that seems to be... That seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. That's always seemed reasonable. The, the um, I mean, Shakespeare is an invention, you know? I mean, he, I mean, it's funny. I mean, you read the stuff. I mean, there is, there is a fair amount known about Shakespeare, not a whole lot, but not the sort of thing that really gives you any real insight into... A, a person, you know, that would be the foundation of an autobiography. So to the extent that people write autobiographies, whether they uh, deny it or not, they do kind of plunder the place. What's his name? You know, there's a recent biography by this guy, uh, Stephen Greenblatt. And Greenblatt's this amazing scholar and has always been very, very careful about the work that he does and it's always very historically based. And he decided, though, to write his... And it's, I love this book. I mean, and he just decided, and he tells you right off the bat, you know, this is the way I picture it. I'm not telling, saying that this is the way it is. I'm saying this is the way I picture it. And, uh, as I recall, the death of the son figures largely into it. Um, you know, and that he... that the, the coincidence of the, of the two names... Um, the son was Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah. Right. I mean, Hamlet is. See, one of the things I, uh, if, if anyone wants to hear this, um, that one of the things about Hamlet that I think it kind. I mean, it may spoil it or may m make it more interesting. I don't know which. But if you think of Shakespeare writing history plays, for instance, and and those, you know, people go to the theater and they know what's going to happen. You know, they know. 
that in the course of this play, these events will take place. I mean, Shakespeare fools around with them, and he condenses them and you know, makes a mess of them and so on. But in the end, you know, the, 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 the battles are won by the people who won the battles, that kind of thing. Hamlet is a story that was very popular. It has a real literary currency. So, you, you know, in a, in a very literate society... A pre-existing... Yeah, it has, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Norse legend that then gets kind of... It, it first comes into being in a, in a, um, a Latin form, this um, priest in... I guess he's in, in uh, Scandinavia writes a kind of history and 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 the Hamlet story is a is a key sort of foundational mythological story you know the way histories of that time tend to have that you know like English history has a kind of prehistory that is clearly just legendary and then gradually as you get closer to current times it becomes more historic history in the sense that we understand it so Hamlet is a is a is a critical story that way, uh, and it gets translated and it's it's available to Shakespeare in English, for instance. Um, but then it also there there is a pre-existing Hamlet play that was written, which they call the Ur Hamlet. The Ur Hamlet, right. and, and there's all kinds of speculation about it. We know that it existed because there is there's a couple of famous mentions of it. One of them is that the ghost cried out like an oyster wife, Hamlet revenge, Hamlet revenge. So, so, and, and the speculation, and it's all speculative, but, but one of the nicer speculations is that this dramatist Thomas Kidd, who wrote a, probably the most popular single play of the period called The Spanish Tragedy, that he, it, it looks like it might have been his play. And if it was his play, then inferences are made on the basis of the the um, the existing kid play, and that it had a ghost in it, we know, and all this sort of. Business. The existing kid play is the Spanish Spanish tragedy. tragedy. Right. Yeah, it's a terrific play. It's a really, really terrific play, and um, so so when Shakespeare writes his Hamlet, he's writing a play on another play, and you can, I think, you can confidently assume that much of his audience would know the previous play, and part of the pleasure for them would be, well, how is, what is Shakespeare doing with this material? How has he rearranged it? Um, and how does it compare, and what, you know, how does it reflect off these, uh, the, the previous play? Um, so you're free as a, a member of an Elizabethan audience, and Shakespeare fam is famous for that too, anyway, you know, Shakespeare, a never tricks his audience. Like he never, he always wants you to know. You know, when the guy's disguised, the guy tells you he's disguised and why he's disguised. Uh, he, he never, he's the exact opposite of a detective writer. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet begins with the little sonnet at the beginning that gives the whole play away. It just it tells you what's going to happen, you know? So, okay, so why are these people there? Well, they're there apparently to see something. You know, they see certain conflicts worked out. And, and you spoke of the Elizabethan audience as judges in a certain sense in a yeah. conversation that we had. That yeah. They, they were sort of judges of, of the action before them. Yeah, and I think that's, and I think that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, a big part of Elizabethan theater 
because you have to understand also that it, it, the theater is this institution that's under direct attack from the Puritans. They hate it. They can't play the plays inside London because the Puritans control the city. So the plays are all shoved out into the, the suburbs. Uh, and this, and then the, the, the defenders of the drama and the defender are busy manufacturing uh, arguments for why this stuff is not bad, but in fact good. And, you know, it comes down to this little formula that it delights and instructs. And I think they take pretty seriously the instruction side of it. Um, now, I think what happens with Shakespeare is that the moral shadings get so, you know, they, get, they become so complicated. He appears to instruct, but in reality there is this deeply secular, potentially nihilistic background vision against which all these characters act. Yeah. I think so. Okay. I, I was going to choose that word uh, in relation to what you had said before with antique Roman, calling it pagan. I was going to suggest you talk a little bit about the, the notion of it being secular. As Could you say that a little louder? I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah. Um, in relation to the, the quote of um, uh, Horatio saying he was an antique Roman, that we discuss the idea instead of it being pagan necessarily, the way in which it's secular, in which there's an opposition in the context of Shakespeare's world where you have the uh, terrific, uh, almost civil strife between the two dominant religious parties, and then in the context of you know, the, the theater called The Globe, um, that there's a great deal of, of division, but also an attempt on Shakespeare's part, I think, to find a unity within. Uh, mm. so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, and yeah, no, I think, and what you point out is, is in fact, pagan is a way of kind of you, you get, you, you manage to sort of slip the secular stuff in under the the pagan. I think the Roman plays are are very much they they exist almost for that purpose that you can you can discuss issues, uh, especially political issues, uh, with a greater degree of freedom when you're after all talking only about Republican Rome or you know some earlier uh, form of the place. Now, in an earlier conversation, when the three of us were talking about how we would, would have this conversation, I, I mentioned T.S. Eliot's well-known judgment that Hamlet is, quote, certainly an artistic failure. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I reminded myself uh, of uh, Harold Bloom's quote, if, if, if Hamlet's an artistic failure, what is a success? Mm -hmm. But, and you said at the time that you regarded Eliot's judgment as absurd. But I... You did. I, but, uh, I don't stand behind those words. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll give you a chance to... No, no, no. I, no, uh, I do. I think it is absurd. Okay, so here's Frank Kermode on, mm -hmm. on, on this. He says, T.S. Eliot's well-known judgment that Hamlet is certainly an artistic failure stems as much other criticism does from a not unreasonable conviction that in expanding a simpler revenge play, Shakespeare produced something which is inexplicably confused as drama, something distorted by the pressure of personal emotion, which did not succeed in finding an objective equivalent in so simple and archaic a form. Thus, the action of the play gives rise to many problems for reader and producer alike, and there is, especially in the part of Hamlet himself, 
an evident charge of passion, a wild contrariety between his language and its occasions, which blur the outline of the work, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I took it at face value when you said you thought it was absurd, and then I went back to this, mm-hmm. and I found Kermode's defense. Yeah, yeah. And I just wondered... Which I think is absurd. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do, actually. I mean, I, I think that... Um, I mean, do you, should yeah. I pick yeah, it up? Yeah. yeah. Um, what I, I, I think he says some things in there, if I heard them correctly, that, that make a lot of sense. I, my, when I teach my students, you know, I, I say, well, okay, here's Hamlet. This is a play in which Shakespeare took like this really, really crude type of play, a revenge tragedy. And I said, a revenge tragedy... Well, you know them, you, you know, my students. And, and I said, but they're like your action movies. It's an action movie. And he parachuted Einstein into it <laughs> to see what, you know, what the mix would be. And I think that really is a big part of it, that this, this very primitive, very crude story gets now get, finds a figure in it who is so much larger than the story and has so much more going on. But I, I think Shakespeare's... Where that and that he says the objective equivalent, and Eliot made this famous statement at the time that you know everybody and his brother started repeating. Uh, he said Shakespeare fa- failed to find an objective correlative, and whatever he meant by that, but he felt that somehow he hadn't found the words for his play. I mean, that's the only way I can understand it, and. And I just think it's it's completely wrong. And I think it's a difficult play in a certain way. Like, I think you can go to a performance of Hamlet, you see the play, it's exciting, all kinds of things happen, some of them are bewildering, but at the end of it, you think you've seen a good play. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, this is a moment to uh, inject the idea that um, there's always been a disparity between Hamlet and Hamlet, between Hamlet the character and Hamlet the play. That ha- the famously, it's been said that Hamlet doesn't exist without Hamlet. Hamlet, uh, and I think there's something about the idea that this is the one character in all of Shakespeare who you can imagine had written his own play. Mm-hmm. That he is so full of creative genius uh, mm-hmm. and such full of the spark of invention and wit that uh, no other no other character is as like Shakespeare himself as Hamlet mm-hmm. is. Uh, and so I think that there's a way in which uh, what your, uh, uh, I mean, if you take Eliot, which I think is just sour grapes, mm-hmm. you know, I just I think too. that it's, uh, you know, if, if it's an artistic failure, Kermode I have a little more respect for, but, you know, if, if in what he says that it's so difficult for audiences and for readers, I mean, is that a standard by which an artistic success should be judged or, fa- you know, considered yeah. failure? I mean, the difficulty is, is all, in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, no, I, I, exactly. I mean, I think, and, and see, I think it's a play that bears study. And if you, I mean, in a kind of, in a way, well, you start mulling it over and you're thinking about it. And one of the things I think, I mean, and I won't go into the details of this, but one of the things I think Shakespeare deliberately did in that play was he actually he smudged the outlines. He wanted things to be ambiguous. He wanted, part of the atmosphere of that play is this incredible ambivalence of everything. And, and 
the sense in which the, the, the character Hamlet, genius though he be, is kind of fighting his way through the dark in that play. But I think the play actually is, it's huge. I mean, that's, the, that's what I think these people are really saying. It's, you know, they, in, in Romeo and Juliet, in the little poem there, it's, uh, they, they say it's the brief two hours traffic of the stra- stage. Well, Hamlet is the endless five hours traffic of the stage. I mean, it really is. And it's rare, it's absolutely, it's unheard of for people to play the whole play. Brannick did the amazing thing with the movie of playing every last line from both versions of it, because there are kind of two versions. And, uh, and I think it's a wonderful movie. And you went to the movie theater and you got an interlude after three hours or whatever it was, and then came back and were pounded for another hour and a half or so. <laughs> but I think it's, a, it's, it's when, I mean, I'm quite willing to, to go up against Kermode and say, no, look, I mean, just look at that play and look at the construction of it, it's actually, and Shakespeare can be really sloppy in the construction of plays. I mean, he's presumably turning these things out rather quickly. Uh, But Hamlet bears evidence of amazing workmanship. I, there, there are kind of two versions of it. They're not radically different, but they are different. And there's a, Hamlet, of course, everything about Hamlet is a mystery. Nobody agrees on anything. But you hold your views, and I hold one the, a view that is not, usually my views are unpopular, but this one isn't so. Um, and it's, it, my view is that Shakespeare revised it in, in, in a certain direction, and you can see the revisions for what they are, and they give you, some of the revisions give you a really clear sense of something that he's, he thinks he's So what, in doing. what direction was he revising it? Well, I, I, I think one of the, directions was making Hamlet a much more morally ambivalent character. I mean, I think Hamlet on the one, viewed from the angle, and this is where, you know, we got started talking about Tolstoy. Um, Hamlet viewed from, from from the angle of, you know, like the judgments that we like to make when we're sitting there watching people behave, Hamlet's a very, very badly behaved individual and my I have a little my own little specialist interest and did some work on on Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and the view of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in you know the acting world and in the uh, and in the critical world is is they are just regarded as just human uh, trash. I mean, it's re- really quite shocking, I so think. So remind us of who they are in the play. So Rosenkind's Guildenstern are these two guys who come into the play. They've been invited by the king and queen to, um, to, to find out what's wrong with Hamlet. And they're presented as friends of Hamlet's. And they go and they meet Hamlet, and Hamlet greets them in a very, very friendly and favorable way. And then as the play kind of unravels and things get worse and worse... Hamlet, I think, displays, and, and, and the big question, of course, in Hamlet is, was he mad or not? And, and he's certainly pretty paranoid. And, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you know, there's a famous Tom Stoppard play, which is a wonderful play. And I think it's a play that is occasioned by just that, you know, like, 
what the hell is you know happening to these guys and and it's pretty nasty so Hamlet as the play unfolds Rosencrantz and Guildenstern dutifully are carrying out the orders of their king and queen they don't know anything about the nature of the king they think they're doing the right thing they're trying to get on the good side of their friend and trying to help him and he just gets more and more furious with them the more they try to help and then they're the guys who take Hamlet off to England and are in, unknown to them. I, I mean, I don't think you can make this argument at all. Unknown to them, the king, they're carrying a letter that calls for the King of England to put Hamlet to death. And Hamlet finds the letter, opens it up, and he changes the, you know, he, he changes the letter, and it tells the king to put Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to right, death. Okay. Okay. So, so that, there's, and I think in the course of that, Hamlet displays an absolutely shocking face. I mean, from the point of view of, of delight and instruct, ordinary mor morality, you know, like, what, do you put people, do you put innocent people to death because you're having a temper tantrum? I think no, I mean, and I think, and I think that's one of the kind of lessons in the play. I mean, you can get, a lot of it has to do with this hierarchies in that society and the fact that people like Hamlet do get away with these kinds of things and how terrifying that must be to and, and he was the prince. He was the, uh, yeah. the named successor to the king. He comes after Machiavelli, after Montaigne. He had read or knew Machiavelli. And so uh, I'm wondering whether, uh, even for his audience, uh, the idea that a prince, potentially a king, would uh, abide by the standard morality of the time was in fact accepted, or whether they thought that someone who would be king, mm -hmm. uh, in you know, after all, in his relationship with Ophelia, her brother says to her, or maybe it's the father mm -hmm. Polonius, mm -hmm. one of them do. says, yeah. you know, he's dallying with you, he's mm -hmm. got greater interests of state that he's going to have to follow mm -hmm. regardless, so mm -hmm. that the sense that Hamlet was somebody who would be controlled by interests of state is there in the play. Right. And I wonder whether uh, there was an assumption that Hamlet would be, uh, uh, you know, an archetype of, of conventional morality when he was the heir to the throne. I think there's a, a big issue about the fact that he's returning like with like. In other words, he had been uh, set for, marked for execution, so he's marking... Yeah. Rosencrantz and yeah. Guildenstern for execution. But I think the, the real undercurrent that I find in all of this is the fact that there is, um, throughout the play, an un unwillingness on Hamlet's part to revenge. That Claudius is available to him at a certain point for slaughter. Mm -hmm. Claudius is praying. Hamlet comes in upon him. He could easily kill him. And he says, I can't kill him now because he's a prayer. If I kill him now, he'll go right to heaven. But repeatedly throughout, even up to the very end of the play, the fifth act, there is that sense of other people are dropping like flies around him, but Hamlet doesn't do the deed. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about that ambivalence, which mm -hmm. is part of his character, bad mm -hmm. part of his nature. You know, he's not sure at first that the ghost is actually a good ghost or yeah. a bad ghost. You know, is he, and yeah. he's... He does, but there, the, the, the problem I find with that view is that he does kill Polonius. And he he thinks Polonius is the king at the point that he kills him, and when he and it's one of his great moments, you know, where he 
stabs through the curtain there. But that's right after he's come across Claudius at prayer. prayer. He won't kill him then, and then he thinks several minutes later yeah. he's in his, uh, his yeah. wife's bedchamber behind a curtain, yeah. that he'll kill him then because... Yeah, but I mean, but still, the fact is that he is, and and you see, I I think he gets. I think you see part because the the another big thing kind of built into the play is the is the the theory of divine right and the theory that the king is divinely appointed and you you really have absolutely no redress against a king. I mean, you the only thing you can do is you can refuse kind of wicked orders, but you can't then uh, think, furthermore, you're so wicked, we're going to get rid of you. You know, so the, the divine right, it's a completely foolish idea, but I mean, it's, it, but it, it, that is the idea. So, okay, so the king is God's anointed, God's appointed. In the framework of the fact that this king had just killed his brother, who was king. Right, no, exactly, that's what <laughs> makes the whole thing absurd, I mean, absolutely absurd. But then, but see, what happens there when he, when he comes upon Claudius praying... Uh, it, it, okay, so the divine right theory, but yes, you know, we all have ob uh, um, obligations to obey the king, but actually the king, according to the theory, has obligations to all of us. I mean, we're all his subjects and we're all dependent upon him and in some way he is responsible for us. You know, the, the theory is absurd. I mean, it's absolutely absurd in terms of what human beings actually do, but it's, it's kind of useful propaganda and it was propaganda you know it was it was you, you they had these um, sermons you know when you went to church you had to go to church and then in addition to having your your minister drone on the way ministers are supposed to drone on <coughs> they would every church in the land on a particular Sunday would be reading a particular homily and these homilies had all kinds of things in them and there was one homily that was all about civil disobedience and the absolute forbidding of it so okay so so the, the so the king has that kind of aura around him when Hamlet comes upon Claudius in the prayer uh, I think that I mean my view of it is that the Elizabethan audience he decides that he's not going to kill him because if I kill him now, he'll go to heaven. We've seen the ghost. The ghost apparently comes from some horrible place. It seems to be purgatory, but it, it's apparently he, t he won't talk about it because he says it's just so awful. And so when but Hamlet says, okay, I'm not going to kill him now because I'd send him to heaven, yeah, I think people think, many people in Shakespeare's audience would find that extremely wicked. I mean, they would think, we can understand you taking revenge. We can understand hot blood of the moment, that kind of thing. But the idea that you've now taken upon yourself the destination of a human soul, that is not your business at all. So when he does that, I think he's really on the wrong side of things. Then subsequently he comes in there, he's having the, you know, he's being uh, violent towards his mother. She cries out, help. Polonius cries out, help. He stabs him. His response to that, he opens the curtain, thou wretched, rash, intruding fool, I took thee for thy better. Mm. You know, like there's absolute no remorse. I mean, mm -hmm. there's absolutely no remorse at all about, about the killing. So, so much of the play, I think, gives an audience an opportunity to look at 
uh, at the kind of, you know, behavior that none of us should indulge in. And, but on the other hand, and this is the flip side of that, and I think you're kind of, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of missing the point or getting slow on it, but uh, is that there is some wonderful way in which Hamlet is charismatic. He is a law unto himself. He does get to throw the biggest dramatic tantrum in the history of theater. He gets to behave badly in all kinds of ways. And, and I think that that's one feature, a significant feature of the Elizabethan hero is the is exactly that. You do understand you got to pay in the end. I mean, that's why I've, I'm always sort of shocked by by television. No, <laughs> no, but I am sort of shocked by shows where people are violent and vengeful and nasty and do all those things that all of us want to do, and at the end, kind of ride off into the sunset. Let know? me let me take yeah. this in a, a different direction for a moment. But let's let's first of all, I'm headed back toward the Tolstoy mm-hmm. piece of this. Um, I mentioned to both of you that that in preparing for this, I wanted to, you know, I read the play again, and then I wanted to see a film. And the only one down at the film store was the Mel Gibson mm-hmm. Hamlet. So I went down and got Mel Gibson's Hamlet, and Charles and I watched it, and. And you have both seen it, and you both said, you know, pretty like good, it. pretty good, you know, pretty good Hamlet. Yeah. For and um, but what I realized at the end of watching it um, was that I, my predominant response to the strong experience of seeing the play, as opposed to just reading it, was a, an underlying sense of nausea. Mm-hmm. I felt nauseated, mm-hmm. and I thought that's strange. And then I was reading Harold Bloom's wonderful book, Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human. I know a lot of people make fun of Bloom. Uh, you th- said you thought that's sour grapes too, you know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, a lot of people think of, of, of Bloom as a, a buffoon uh, <laughs> uh, of some kind. But in any case, there's a beautiful quote here uh, uh, from Bloom in which he says, in the birth of tragedy, Nietzsche memorably got Hamlet right seeing him not as the man who thinks too much, but rather as the man who thinks too well. And here's the quote. For the rapture of the Dionysian state, with its annihilation of ordinary bounds and limits of existence, contains, while it lasts, a lethargic element in which all personal experience of the past becomes immersed. This chasm of oblivion separates the worlds of everyday reality and the Dionysian reality. But as soon as this everyday reality re-enters consciousness, it is experienced as such with nausea. An ascetic, will-negating mood is the fruit of these states. In this sense, the Dionysian man resembles Hamlet. Both have once looked truly into the essence of things. They have gained knowledge, and nausea inhibits action. For their action could not change anything in the eternal nature of things. They feel it to be ridiculous or humiliating, that they would be asked to set right a world that is out of joint. Mm. And Bloom keeps coming back to that Mm -hmm. idea. He keeps coming back to the idea that Hamlet is the modern consciousness, that with all his contradictions, he is modernity, that Mm -hmm. the ghost is 
the more archaic consciousness mm-hmm. who confronts, mm-hmm. you know, contemporary man with his demand for revenge, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that this person who invented interiority in the in the contemporary sense of the word, uh, you know, without values in a mm-hmm. certain sense, but paralyzed because nothing makes sense to do uh, in in the in the dark vision of reality that he holds, you know. And mm-hmm. Bloom actually says at the end uh, that, that he says the purpose of life is to look as deeply into reality as you can without being annihilated by mm-hmm. it. And that Hamlet mm-hmm. was, in the end, annihilated because yeah. he looked too deeply into truth. So let me just put that there in a parenthesis and say that's where I think we come to Tolstoy and what is art with his deeply Christ-centered vision mm-hmm. of what is art and what is not art, his, his critique of Shakespeare, among others. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the question I hold is, is contemporary consciousness with this nihilistic, dark vision actually to be preferred to a Christ-centered, or if you wish, a spirit-centered mm-hmm. vision, mm-hmm. where the emptiness is a fullness and delivers one toward peace and transcendence mm-hmm. as opposed to nihilism and chaos. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to me that that's maybe where mm-hmm. we see this engagement mm-hmm. of Tolstoy and yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. Um, I could talk a little bit about the, the idea of the modern coming up with, with Hamlet. And I think if we go back a little bit, the uh, English Renaissance uh, really is sparked by the Italian Renaissance. And there are, uh, the whole idea of what was then known as occult Neoplatonism, where this idea of um, the, uh, or the Rosicrucian idea of the world was beginning to penetrate and percolate in, in Elizabethan England. And this held that there was actually, uh, this interests you also because of your interest in the Kabbalah, it's the mm-hmm. same idea that there's a, a paradigm of a journey that um, where each individual has multiple meanings in the context of, of a, a path from essentially from either a hell or, or a, a place below to a place above. And that it's a journey to a, a divine love. And this is a, a way, this is something that um, shapes, I think, Shakespeare's consciousness. Uh, and he makes use of those ideas in the context of the world that's being um, driven apart by religious strife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is Tolstoy's idea also that um, somehow civilized man has to shed and cut back and reduce himself to Christian simplicity. And that this is one of the Rosicrucian ideas is that no matter how, uh, how well off you are, you should not do what you do, but you should look after those who don't have. You should look after the ill. And this is very harmonious with what Tolstoy is saying. But I think uh, in Tolstoy's uh, sense, it's about repudiation. Mm -hmm. And I think in in Shakespeare's sense, it's about um, salvation and about um, creativity. And uh, Tolstoy was turning his back on all of his creative genius. He was he was saying Anna Karenina and War and Peace uh, were not successful. They were not right, and they were morally freighted. And I think it's just at the end of his life, he's having a crisis, Tolstoy, and he's trying to you know, win over 
uh, people at his side, and so he's writing these diatribes, essentially, what is art, and he wrote an even more um, acerbic piece about Shakespeare, you know, about the, the tragedy of, of, of Shakespeare, and condemns him for not being able to create any real characters that have any moral weight, and uh, Shakespeare, on the other hand, really is um, so full of life, and, and between Hamlet and Falstaff, you have these two great uh, mm -hmm. godheads, but uh, I think it was George Orwell who wrote this wonderful piece. Yeah, I... I have a little quote from oh, it, actually. Okay. If you well, no, what you I was going to say about Orwell was just the fact that he considered um, Tolstoy to be Lear-like. Yeah. Is that what yeah, you're going to read? He considered him to be what? Lear-like. Yeah, he, uh -huh. he wrote this piece called Lear, Tolstoy, and the Fool. And and it is remarkable, the, the kind of the Tolstoy giving everything up and, and wandering off and his children betray him. And, you know, the whole he really does go through something that is so like, what you see in King Lear. And, uh, but Tolstoy just hates Shakespeare and he does this savage parody of, of King Lear. It's very, very funny and he's talk, talking throughout, throughout about how impartial he is, is being. And anyway, that's, it, Orwell writes this beautiful essay on it. It's a really simple, it's, you know, I don't know, nine or ten pages in Lear, Tolstoy and the Fool. And I, I reread it actually the other day and I, this thing that came up that I just totally loved. Uh, he says, What at bottom Tolstoy most dislikes is an exuberance, a tendency to take not so much a pleasure as an interest in the actual process of life. His reaction is that of an irritable old man who is being pestered by a noisy child. <laughs> this is his view of, of Shakespeare. And I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, you threw in salvation there. I really, I think there is a kind of salvation in Shakespeare, or there's a drive to it, and you see it in the sonnets, I think. You, you know, I don't think Shakespeare, we talked a bit about it the other day in terms of, of you know, our shared interest in, well, in Proust. And I think in Proust, there is this kind of very mystical thing at the end of the at the end of you know three thousand pages of it, where he really does, there's an apotheosis, and art is somehow salvation. A literary work somehow transcends its time, its place, and the mere mortality of of Proust. You know, and and I mean, I'm you know an, an absolute non-believer, and but when I read that part of Proust, I mean, I just it's so incredibly moving it's overwhelming it's you are you, you know you're willing suspension of disbelief you're yeah proust i totally agree with you in shakespeare i think it's it's it, it, i mean shakespeare is so i think utterly without beliefs i think he is quite cynical i mean i don't think it prevents him from entering into all of the sort of emotions of, that human beings have. I think he does have this incredible interest in them and and he can just pick them out of the air and so on. Um, but I, at, the, at the end, I, I don't think there's any, for, for Shakespeare, the, what what is left is what we get. You know, what we got all these plays. We got 37 plays, we got 154 sonnets, we got a couple of poems. Uh, the, the, the stuff is, but with, without 
I mean, Tolstoy is so right about Shakespeare. His his hatred of him because Tolstoy thinks art should serve. And I think I'm getting back to what you're saying there, Michael. Like because um, Shakespeare doesn't write with him with well, he does. He writes, I think, with he's he's capable of recognizing morality. He's capable of recognizing that somebody is cruel and sadistic and someone else is gentle and you know. And I think he has a, a quite obvious preference for the latter, but he doesn't write with any defined moral purpose, and certainly without any defined religious purpose. And and Tolstoy, Tolstoy is right about that. I think he is right about that. That and and again, I think what is art? You know, like and and, and what is the significance of art? And I think part of it, there are different views of it. I mean, they are, there aren't, you know, it's not like there's, this is an answerable question, but people bring different things to the, to the process. I mean, presumably if you lived in Soviet Russia or Hitler's Germany, you got plenty of art. Let me, let me yeah. just take Tolstoy's side here for a moment. Um, let us take... Christ consciousness in the deepest contemporary sense of that word, that this is not necessarily something that one individual carries, but something that, you know, the, the, sort of the concept of the cosmic Christ, for example, let's just take that. And, and, let, and let us posit, which is not hard to do, that the world is in a very desperate situation mm -hmm. and that our contemporary values and worldview are an intrinsic dimension of what is destroying life on mm -hmm, earth. Mm -hmm. Now, let us also posit for a moment that Harold Bloom is right, that Shakespeare invented the human, mm -hmm. and he invented us in a certain mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. And this ironic, nihilistic, mm -hmm. uh, deeply dark vision, which mm -hmm. we carry as modern, is in fact part of what is destroying mm -hmm. life. I agree. And therefore, Tolstoy is calling in this contemporary reading of, of Tolstoy for a return to a cosmic spirituality yeah. which reconciles us. So it seems to me that, that although Tolstoy, because uh, although in some respects, I think in many respects, he's a lesser figure artistically, he's a major oh, figure, a but major certainly, figure. Yeah. certainly one could argue that Shakespeare, you yeah. can't make the claim that Tolstoy invented the human. Mm -hmm. The way you can make it for Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, if let me just finish this, and then if if that is the if that's the case, then isn't there a case for what Tolstoy is saying? Go ahead. I was just going to say that um, Tolstoy is writing about Shakespeare. You're talking about nihilism in the sense of in the context of Hamlet. I think if you look at Shakespeare and his body of work, nihilism is certainly not the predominant experience. And I think that that's what Tolstoy really misses out by holding him at arm's length and saying that, that he's a failure. Because the whole, the development of, of Shakespeare's career all the way up to, you know, to The Tempest where he talks about this insubstantial pageant faded, I mean, he is, he is joining the fullness and the emptiness. And there is that, that sense of completion, that mm -hmm. complexity held and simplicity you know, re reduced to, to resonance that is the great gift that certainly Tolstoy has to be deranged not to uh, mm. to acknowledge. And yet, I, no, I, I mean, heard I was, Hanford I'm, saying I'm, I'm that Shakespeare as a whole 
not just Hamlet. Yeah, I think is, is, is well, I think that it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, no, I think there's this. In, I mean, like the end of the Shakespeare's career with the romances and that. There's mm -hmm. this incredible serenity in, mm -hmm. in those works. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of this. The old mm -hmm. horrible old man. He must. I mean, he didn't get to be particularly old, but. But, you know, you have these sort of fussy, nasty fathers, you know, mm -hmm. being pains in the ass over their daughters. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I, and, and, and uh, but I mean, in the end, sh Shakespeare lets go. He really, I mean, that's what I think is a big thing in Shakespeare. That, you know, he, if, okay, if life is cyclical and your children, you know, take over and you kind of quietly subside, I mean, I think Shakespeare does a pretty, Lovely job of that, but there's something else that that uh, Tolstoy wants from art, and I think it's a legitimate thing to demand of it. Like I, I, I think you anticipated me there, Michael, and and that is that that if and and as at, as an extreme, I was starting to say like as an extreme, you know, places like Nazi Germany and and uh, Stalin's Russia. They have a really clear idea of what art is supposed to do, and they make it do that, you know. And and it, you know, it serves the, you know, greater glory of the working class, or you know, the greater glory of Nazi Germany, and 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 some of the art isn't, you know, the Lenny Riefenstahl stuff isn't bad. How is it, that different than uh, Shakespeare serving the Elizabethan world or the Jamesian world? Because I think Shakespeare is always undermining that world. Because I think that to the extent that there is an official ideology, like I, you can see it in Hamlet in terms of the divine right thing. I mean, he's, he, I mean, it, it, he's close to ridiculing it. And I think that that was, the, and I, I think you're right, Michael, that that the the mess is upon us. That Shakespeare, in a part, is an inventor of the mess. You know. He's, um, uh, you know, if you have a, a kind of pessimistic view of things, I think Shakespeare gives you tremendous consolation. You know, you, you sit and you read the stuff. I mean, you're, you're, you're in the midst of it all and getting away from it at the same time, having your cake and eating it too. Uh, but it, it's, and, and I think that what I do, what I sort of said earlier, which I think is kind of, core in Shakespeare is a way, especially in the tragedies, a way that individuals get to lash out at the, you know, the, the power of the world around them, that, that the world is not, you know, you're, you're an infant, you, the world is one thing, you think it's going to be that forever, it isn't. Uh, you never quite give that up, and so you write these tragedies in which you kind of Get to kind of break things, and and uh, I, I really, you know, and I I think that's a big part of it, and I think there's I think there's a value to human beings in that. I do actually, because I don't have much confidence in in you know I mean hell with that my views on this, but uh, but I but I think that Shakespeare is is you know was tremendously useful in that way, but he may his day may be done. And maybe we do need, you know, art that is that is really socially responsible, uh, you know, and that doesn't represent the desire of individuals to maintain a kind of an alienation. Because I think that's, I guess that's. I think it was Hegel's phrase that uh, that Shakespeare created these free artists of themselves mm -hmm. in his characters and. Mm -hmm. 
and my sense, if just extending the sense of, of, of the Christ in the broad sense, is that it would be the antithesis of Christ consciousness for it to be oppressive in the way Nazi Germany or yeah, no, any exactly. kind of politically no, of correct yeah, it was. No, of course. But that, but that, that, that consciousness would only work if we all became free artists of ourselves mm. and of our own choice mm-hmm. moved toward a life-affirming thing. So my sense would be that, that I, I doubt very much, I think you both probably doubt very much, that Shakespeare's day is almost done. But I think that the consciousness that we m- may require mm-hmm. may require Shakespeare and a further evolution mm-hmm. of Tolstoy's vision mm-hmm. so that there's some kind of synthesis of the two in becoming free artists of ourselves who are responsible to the earth as yeah. well as to the nihilistic possibilities. Yeah. Well, I uh, think about Ted Hughes who wrote about Tolstoy writing about Shakespeare and he said, it's like um, a child closing his eyes and saying the sun isn't there. <laughs> <laughs> And I really feel that it is, you know, that that's the kind of thing that if you choose to narrow, you know, your mm-hmm. your, your uh, reality of the world according to an, an ideology or, or um, mm-hmm. a moral sense, you know, you're welcome to do that, but you're missing, you know, you're missing out. And I think that's the flip side of uh, yeah of, of what yeah. Your I mean, there's a, there, there, yeah, there's this. In, I mean, honestly, you know. Spend your time reading Shakespeare. You'll have a great time. <laughs> so with that comment, let's well, open no, it up sorry. to the room here for uh, other views. Uh, uh, anybody have any thoughts, dreams, reflections? Yes. Is anybody aware of how Tolstoy treated his wife so horribly? I read her diary and seen what a, just a, how he almost created a cult of his children and tried to turn them against her, and just it was really an incredibly abusive, sick treatment of her. So I kind of question his. To me, he's more like a cult leader than a Christ consciousness with mm-hmm. old ideologies and old values that are part of the problem that we're facing. And that's a subject you and Joel have worked on for some right. time. Right. Right. Yeah. In our new book, which was had its publication date yesterday. Yay! Yeah. Yeah. Partly about that. Great. Good point. Mm-hmm. Other comments? We've stunned you all into... <laughs> this is the first time that's ever happened at the new school. Somebody else have a hand? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm reeling here because it's just so much to think about, but I, I had the great joy and pleasure of performing in Hamlet on, on two different productions. And there's so much in it as an actor, as a, as, a, as a person, that there's so many characters that we haven't even mentioned or taught. Laertes as, as you know, active man, as uh, opposed to Hamlet. You know, Laertes who goes out and does things where, and doesn't think about them, and they end up fighting and killing each other, you know. And what, just the levels of... of um, Symbolism, you know, the way Polonius is, in some senses, an absolute, you know, pompous ass. And yet, in other levels, he's a deeply caring parent, and, and he's trying his very best to be a good parent, and so on and so on. Um, and gets killed for, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who who I believe are genuinely friends, who get sucked into this thing, where they never really know what's going on. They they don't, I mean, 
why does he have them killed? They didn't know that they were carrying a letter ordering him to be killed. You know, they weren't guilty in that sense. I, I, I feel, you know, have you played, was it Rosencrantz or was it Rosencrantz? <laughs> 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 I played one of them. Why would they be killed? Because they're, they're just poor, innocent, you know, bystanders dragged into this thing. But anyway, um, and the whole thing, I mean, it's it, it, on one level, or on some levels, uh, Hamlet, it's like, it's like a, a statement of the human condition and how life on this earth is, and the stuff about absenthe from felicity a while, but yes, you know, ultimately we will all return to the, the beautiful white light, and that is a good place to go, and, and, you know, we've got all this knifing and stabbing and backstabbing and revenge stuff, and uh, in, the, in the meantime, but ultimately, you know, we'll go back to the white light, and why not hurry along there, you know? Um, the thing about being a Roman, I mean, that, that I, I, I think that's a reference to him falling on his sword, that that's, he's saying, I'd rather, I'd rather commit suicide uh, than stay here, you know, I'd rather join you in death. And he's going, no, no, don't, you know. Um, the ghost, I mean, the ghost is a wonderful, you know, how often do you get a, a real ghost that's talking to you and telling you where he's coming from? And, Casper. Uh, you know, it's just all kinds of great, great stuff in there. And of course, my favorite part is the actors and, and the way that he treats them and the way that he respects them and the way that he listens and to them. And the play them. within the play. In the play within the Well, no, it's not the play. It's when they, the actors arrive right. mm -hmm. and then he says, okay, do something for me. Do, and, and he, this, the lead actor launches into this ancient Greek stuff from, from uh, uh, the fall of Troy, you know. And Hanford, you were, you were saying earlier on that the way, I found this fascinating, that these actors would do a whole bunch of plays mm. and that they carried all these plays yeah, they were amazing. in their minds. What did you call them? Uh, something machines? That, well, they, yeah, memory machines. Memory I mean, machines they really were they, incredible because there are, the, there's some... Um, there's this one particular book that survived. You know the um, Shakespeare in Love? We all saw that, right? And the guy who's getting the hot foot at the beginning of the movie mm -hmm. is Philip Henslow. And Henslow was a theater entrepreneur. And Henslow's diary has survived. And it's this gold mine of information about everything, you know. And among others is that they paid more money for the costumes than they did for the plays. You know, it was a definitely a um, a buyer's market. So you could, you know, some poor hack could, you know, work his soul off creating a play, and then you know, for five pounds or what, even less, Henslow would buy it. But like the gown for the boy who's going to be the queen, you know, we'd pay fifteen pounds for that. Anyway, Henslow's diary has information about plays that his theater played, and I think it's something like. 11 different plays in a two-week period and these are all the same actors this isn't you know the these guys are rehearsing this and you know they're bringing certain things out that they are most of them are things that they've played before um, but clearly these people had just amazing gifts as as just in terms of, of recitation. I, I also do hold the view, that, you know, the famous actor 
um, of Shakespeare's company was this guy, Richard Burbage. And look, he just walked in on time. <laughs> Give us a line. But Burbage, hi, on. But and Burbage seems to have been the guy for whom all these parts were uh, were written. And you, you really do, uh, I think, have to assume he must have been an unbelievable actor. I mean, there must have been just talent there that was so formidable that, you know, that you could write this stuff and these guys could, yeah, could actually is, play this it. This is uh, Polonius describing the troupe of actors in terms of what Hamlet might want to have them perform. Polonius says, the best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral, comical, historical, pastoral, tragical, historical, tragical, comical, <coughs> historical, pastoral, scene, individual, or poem unlimited. Seneca cannot be too heavy nor a Plautus too light. <laughs> this is all. And we available. find that again uh, in uh, Heather de Brow's essay in the uh, Riverside Shakespeare on 20th century criticism. Uh, because actually, this is a, a broader interesting point that, you know, these centuries of criticism of, of Shakespeare and how he didn't emerge into preeminence until. What the, almost the beginning of the 18th century? I, above. It's funny, that, and that's Tolstoy's view that yeah. he was actually invented invention of the human. He was mm. invented by Germans, according mm -hmm. to Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. the, the English didn't think he was very good. I don't think that's right. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't. I mean, it's it's um, his. First of all, he the, the the collected plays are published in the first folio in 1623. Shakespeare dies in 1616. His pals, um, Heming and Condell, who were shareholders in the company with them and fellow actors, they decide to, as a memorial to their friend to bring out the collected work. So they do this, 1623. There are three more editions. It's, it's expensive. It cost a pound. It was, you know, it was really an, ex uh, an expensive undertaking that was... Um, they, they had subscriptions, people subscribed to it, then they, it took them a long time to, you know, they presumably started on this thing shortly after Shakespeare's death, and it took them, you know, five or six years to get it out. So, so but, it's, but it's successful, and it's republished, there's a second folio, third folio, and the fourth folio, second, 1636, 1640-something, 1660s. So there, that's an indication of a continued interest in Shakespeare's work. So when uh, does Ben Jonson call him the, the leading spirit of the age? He so was not of an age, I mean, but from that's that time. in the the dedicatory poem to the first folio. But and and Milton, for instance, in the second or third folio contributes a poem on Shakespeare mm -hmm. with his native wood notes, wild, and. Uh, and then um, in sort of the late 17th century, Dryden, who's the preeminent poet of his time and who does a lot of bodlerizing of Shakespeare, he'd rewrite Shakespeare's plays and clean them up for a more, more sophisticated and civilized taste. But Dryden is weighing the two heavies of the period, Johnson and ben Johnson and Shakespeare, and famously says, you know, and he, and he does this wonderful essay on the two of them, 
And he says, we admire Johnson, but we love Shakespeare. So Shakespeare's, actually Shakespeare's reputation never suffers that kind of total eclipse. That no, nobody, nobody claimed that I read the total eclipse, but yeah. that he was considered sort of in the company of Johnson uh, and, and yeah, others. Yeah, and Fletcher. Uh, and, and, yeah. and Dryden, as you said, called him the most comprehensive soul. Yeah. Well, by uh, Keats's time, it's clear that Shakespeare is heads above the others. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that's, you know... And Keats is when? Uh, 1810, 1820. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But even in, you know, the, the, in this, you have Alexander Pope bringing out an edition of Shakespeare in, you know, whenever it is, 1730s. And so, see, right after the fourth folio, which are, these are just, in effect, reprints of the, of the first thing, after the fourth folio, every, everybody and his brother is bringing out complete editions of Shakespeare. So the point yeah. is that for a time, he's one among equals with Johnson and one or two other yeah. people, right? Yeah. Then he begins to emerge. And then you have this 18th and 19th century bardolatry, this yeah, enormous sure. yeah. romantic idealism yeah. of yeah. him. Yeah. And then you have the 20th century with all it brings. And I just love this. But after 1970... Uh, you have the emergence of, you know, structuralism, deconstruction, new historicism, cultural materialism, feminism, gay and lesbian criticism, materialist feminism, and queer theory. And everybody is taking Seen off... In, uh, it's just like the Polonius quote that you read. No, it's pointing at Shakespeare. Right. You know, the, so yeah. that there's... Yeah. So you have this sense that, that he's been this mirror for these hundreds of years yeah. for all these different yeah, no, he's, endless and views. And is it performance or just, scholar, just scholars? It's both. It's both. I mean, there, I, mean I, I suppose those are two strands of the thing, you know, and there was, there was a way, in fact, when I was, you know, studying this stuff when I was younger, and the emphasis certainly at university and that on uh, the text as something that you read, you know, and and you know, the, the, like King Lear, for instance, no performance could do it justice. That kind of thing. Um, it's interesting now that the kind of Rolls Royce of Shakespeare editions, the Arden Shakespeare, which was the sort of stuffiest of all, you know, in terms of this kind of literary view of of the thing, that the Arden clearly was losing ground to the Oxford, and and uh, there's a whole bunch of them that are, you know, they're really good, too. And you prefer Arden, don't you? I actually prefer the Oxfords. Oh. I really do. I mean, they're, they're, mm -hmm. Arden still is they're, they're too conservative for mm -hmm. my taste. There's also the, uh, the way in which the English imperial world began to spread around, yeah. and Shakespeare went with it with, around exactly. the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there is the, uh, the way in which later on we begin to see how there are, um, there are existing myths in all cultures that somehow resonate with Shakespeare and that he becomes one of many voices, not just in English playwrights, but in, in world culture. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as, as late as, you know, the, that, I don't know if you've seen, there's a wonderful Merchant Ivory film called Shakespeare Walla, which uh, takes place um, at a point in the 1960s when an Englishman and his wife have raised their family in India, and they travel around as part of a touring company performing Shakespeare. And this is in, you know, in India, in the small towns, and it's just at the point in the 1960s where the boys in the schools are kind of no longer real. You know, it's like, this stuff doesn't have any meaning for me, and it's about the break mm -hmm. um, 
but he, but that really gives you a sense of, of how ingrained it was. It, wherever England went, Shakespeare went with yeah. it. And I think it, the, the emphasis now is, like the Ardens going over, the Ardens have pictures in them and they have performance histories and that. Twitter. Yeah, so, so exactly. So it's... It, so the emphasis more and more is on at least recognizing that the text is the grounds for a performance. Um, you know, read it if, if... I mean, I of course, for me, um, and I love going to Shakespeare plays. I mean, I really do enjoy them in Shakespeare movies and the whole business, but I... You know, I just I love I love reading the poetry. I mean, I and and Orwell had some nice things to say about that. You know that there is there's there's a music in Shakespeare that it just it's extraordinary. You know, it, and the and the the, you know, the the songs in Shakespeare, the the sonnets, the but the iambic pentameter, the prose is beautiful. I mean, everything about it is just so rich and. You just you hear it. It's like Caliban on, you know, on the island there. You know, who there's that incredibly beautiful description of, of the music of the island and this, this savage deformed slave. Caliban responds nonetheless to these sort of twanglings and janglings of, of the of that environment, and uh, I think. I mean that, you know, I mean, Shakespeare does take a little bit of work, you know, it's, I mean, there is a way in which they have a lot of the stuff, especially jokes, a lot of the jokes are, you know, like, I mean, I think they're funny if you kind of, you know, you learn what that joke is, you think, oh, that guy is actually funny, but they're dead in the waters for most of us, and, and, but there's, there's still that just amazing music of the verse, and if you can get yourself to hear it, you know, you hours of innocent fun await you. <laughs> Other questions or comments? Anybody? Um, <laughs> one of the established themes was um, Tolstoy's idea of what art was, and it was his revulsion of Shakespeare's essential modernism mm -hmm. and whole restructuring of mm -hmm. it's the beginning of the modern world, seeing a man. Mm -hmm. Seeing man in a different light mm -hmm. than the Christ-based or spiritual-based or mm -hmm. moral, morally structured mm -hmm. universe that that he wanted to hold tight to. Uh, he's the old man and the young man, mm -hmm. and that kind of correlates. And you sort of intimated that or brought up that that might have been the beginning of our modern man brought on the, the modern era which is a deteriorating time. There's something moral that's gone, and um, we can't get it back. And you thought, is there something we can reconcile with Tolstoy's vision with, with, with modern vision? And you brought that out. It didn't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really was, we didn't sit with that at all. Mm. And I'm intrigued by that, why we don't. And is there anywhere in there, I mean, it might be another evening, <laughs> of uh, discussing the reconciliation, if there is any. Well, are there any comments on that? Joel, yeah, I have yeah. a comment on yeah. that. Uh, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with art being in the service of anything, basically. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that, uh, you know, people in power 
realize the power of art. And throughout history, they tried to make it in service of their power, you know, one way or another. You know, but for me, art is a, <coughs> it's like a lens that you look through and see something in a different kind of way. And it breaks out of the chains of whatever structure that you put on it. So that you know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, like it could be in the service of a Hitler, or it could be in the service of somebody's perception of what spirituality is. But for me, real art, you know, breaks through being the service and gives you a lens mm -hmm. that allows you to see something differently, mm -hmm. basically. That's beautiful. Thank you. Other thoughts on on this? Just one final quote, which is, I, there's so many lines that I love so much, but just this one keeps coming back over and over. Mm -hmm. Nothing's neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. <laughs> and that's a very amoral position to take. Eric, what are your reflections on Mike's question about Well, I, I was going to, um, after I've just been speaking about the music of the language, <clears throat> Tolstoy also condemned Beethoven. You know, it wasn't just Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it, it's a clear indication that he's uh, deranged. And I don't <laughs> think, seriously, I don't think it's somebody to take seriously in terms, I mean, it was the end of his career. Um, he was clearly going through a, a almost what I would consider a slightly psychotic um, separation from reality. And uh, I just, I mean, I think there are issues to be drawn from what you're talking about, mm -hmm. but I don't think he's the man to hold up. So, so despite the um, the title of this evening's get together I, mean, I think there's a disclaimer that you know uh, nobody can we can't tell you what art is uh, you have to discover it for yourself mm -hmm. well Michael? Yeah. Uh, you know Tolstoy repudiated Anna Karenina yeah. yes. I mean yeah. that's nuts yeah. <laughs> yeah. all that time wasted <laughs> yeah. But I think there's, there's, there is, but there is a real question because I think, uh, you know, societies have material resources and those material resources are put at the service of various people who are called artists. And so how are those things? See, I don't think it works that way. Yeah. I think the artists, you know, generate it themselves. They don't wait for material resources to come to them. There's a book that you've talked about, uh, about the vision of the artist. We were talking once, and I gave Picasso as an example of, of an artist who's sort of a, you know, a great beast at the same time that he's enormously creative. And you mentioned a, a, a book on art that was something that had a very different vision of the ser the purpose of art and the role of the artist. And I think it was that the artist has, had something to do with craft or service. Yeah, it was called The Unknown Craftsman. Yeah. And it's a, a book by um, a Japanese scholar about art in, the, uh, in Japan in which the artist does not have an ego, the artist is not um, the, the generating force, mm -hmm. that he creates the object, he brings something forth into the world, it's not about himself and his personality and his mm -hmm. needs. It's about somehow, that's what his role is, is to provide that. Mm -hmm. Now, in your talk on Proust, which some of the folks here, and your book, uh, Proust and Pictures, which I highly commend to anybody who doesn't know it, 
You talked about two people, Ruskin and somebody else, who had influences on Proust's uh, aesthetic, his sense of what art was. Can you remind us of the two people and the positions they held on? Well, on uh, the two people, the two poles between whom uh, Proust was, was torn was Ruskin on the one hand, who had a highly moral idea of art, and Whistler on the other, the American painter who worked in, in England and Paris. And uh, Whistler's idea that um, art was what became known as art for art's sake, mm -hmm. that it didn't serve a purpose, it didn't have to have a story, it didn't have to have a <clears throat> conventional narrative or a history or a religious uh, impetus, that there was beauty and color and form and line in the world around us, and those were the two um, aesthetics that Proust combined mm -hmm. in his own. And, and there's a certain parallel, isn't there, between Ruskin and Whistler and Tolstoy and Shakespeare in very broad terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, two of them claiming a moral role for art, and, and Shakespeare claims a moral role for art, but as you say, it's a deeply subversive yes, vision. Yeah. And I think Ruskin's was not subversive, and I think that's a, that's a difference. I mean, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. Ruskin's came from a very genuine place, mm -hmm. which Proust came to understand as not being sufficient, mm -hmm. but not being wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's one other, just Proust association uh, in rereading Hamlet now, you have in the fifth act, after, you know, the whole first part of the play, Hamlet is a young university student, he's in his early 20s, he comes back having gone to England on a boat ride, and he comes back and he's 30-something. And there's this kind of, as you said, willful suspension of belief that happens in Hamlet that also happens in Proust, in which there's this idea that, you know, all of a sudden time is, is um, you know, confabulated. That's an interesting of that. I've never heard anything... Like but there's, you don't hear much about that, about mm -hmm. the fact that in the fifth act, he's all of a sudden 10 years older than he was in the fourth act. Shao, you're a poet and have reflected deeply on questions of poetry and, and so forth. As you listen to this conversation, any thoughts at all come to your mind? Well, I think the question, what is art, is an interesting one. I don't see much parallel between Shakespeare and Tolstoy, actually. Um, as I remember... Tolstoy's What is Art is an examination of 10 to 20 treatises on aesthetics by German writers, uh, which were current at his time, and it's a very dogged examination of very dull writing. Mm -hmm. um, but he was a count. Uh, he had an estate, he had a privileged life. Mm -hmm. um, he was had a kind of cosmopolitan freedom that certainly doesn't match up with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't quite see the parallel between the two figures. I don't think we were talking about a parallel, but as a contrast. Yeah. You know, that Tolstoy's vision of art in the service of morality and Shakespeare's mm. you know, vision of... Uh, and it's interesting, actually, in, in What is Art, actually, he does... Um, he, 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 first of all, he does a hilarious summary of a Wagnerian opera and, mm -hmm. and the rehearsal and the, the, uh, the absolute nightmare that people are going through to put this thing on. And mm -hmm. Tolstoy thinks this is insane. He might be right there. But one of the things that he does at length, actually, in which he shows a sort of remarkable, it seems to me anyway, um, he's current with French poetry and he goes after Baudelaire and uh, 
God, who else? Yeah, he's got a real, you know, and he's really reading this stuff and, and, you know, throwing up his hands and telling you that it's all meaningless and so on. But he is, so he does have a, um, a sense that there's a kind of a runaway aesthetic there uh, that, uh, and that he thinks it's all serving a, a kind of obscurantist elite that really doesn't want to be understood, and therefore this, the kind of poetry that, say, Baudelaire is turning out, is designed not to, I mean, it, it, because Tolstoy insists on that, too, that, I mean, that, it, that, that a work of art is, a, is communication, and it has to communicate universally. And if it's communicating to a particular class or to particular individuals, then it's, it's not art, according to him, or it's bad art, you know. So I don't think he's, I mean, he's not entirely, he, is, he does believe that there is no field of aesthetics. He says that, you know, that that was just uh, concocted by some Germans in the 18th century, and anybody who thinks that there was any interest in beauty or anything before that is just crazy or wrong. But, yeah. Other questions? Yes, Diana. Well, I'm, uh, I don't accept the dichotomy that modern, I think, I think, Part of what's caused modern man's alienation and problems is the flaws in traditional spirituality and traditional worldviews and social institutions. So that the answer uh, isn't to go back, like Tolstoy suggesting, or Vaclav Havel. Like Havel says, we need a new a transformation of consciousness. I agree to that. Then he says, we need Christ consciousness. And I'm thinking, no, I think that was actually part of the old constructs and ideologies that had hidden authoritarianism. And we need some new forms of spirituality and morality and solutions, because the old morality was also authoritarian. And so this whole argument about morality, what is morality? And subversiveness is very welcome if there's hidden authoritarianism in the old morality. It needs to be subverted. But so you pass through a period of modernism and alienation when the subversion leaves you with, what do we do now? And that's what we, our challenge spiritually is to figure that out as a species. And artists are part of that. But and it doesn't come it? through Is dogma. anyone speaking to that? I mean, or can we speak of any modern contemporary writers in, in anywhere close to the same, in the same <coughs> breath with Shakespeare or even Tolstoy? Well, I mean, who I are we looking to now for... Each other. <laughs> what would I mean, you say to that? In terms of what would you say to that? I can't. I can't think one. I was sitting words, here going, "What? Who?" I'm Ibsen and Strindberg, which I find really boring. But that would be the last time. Who? Who? Ibsen and Strindberg. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of dramatic literature, mm -hmm. who is it? Do your students ever ask you? Do they ever say, uh, I don't want to read Shakespeare, give me, would they, would a Judd Apatow? Well, <laughs> Wait, who is it? I say, read the course outline. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, what is your answer to that? I'm, I, I, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm a fossil, you know, so I don't know very much that's contemporary. Well, I would say for you, what you said before is that uh, Beckett is somebody who... Yeah, I mean, Beckett's someone that, that boy, and if, if that is a, you know, a, a dead end of all dead ends, I mean... But it's not, it's not authoritarian. Yeah, it's not, no, exactly. You know, read your and, Beckett. And, and you've yeah. said that Beckett, Proust, and Shakespeare are the three people that you are... Yeah, they're on. my, you know, like, my mm -hmm. little trinity. trinity. exactly. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I,
is a little bit, um, I mean, it's interesting, it's also confusing. Because <laughs> you, I agree with what you were saying about, um, you know, you can look at the issues that Tolstoy rose, you know, was talking about and say, you know, should people be doing this or should they be doing that? But all of this is in the context of an essay which is proscriptive about what art should be or mm -hmm. shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And they're two different things. Um, you can say art has the responsibility to be part of it, or you can say it doesn't, mm -hmm. you know. But it's not, it's not necessarily the same argument, you know. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting about the Tolstoy thing in this context is it's, it seems dangerous every time you, and you risk looking silly, every time you um, start to make prescriptions about art. Mm -hmm. And that's part of, that issue gets confused with the other issues. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair yeah, enough, too. I, I think this whole conversation here, Eric, I, I'd like to ask you, as you listen to this conversation, and leaving aside, I mean, we've kind of gone beyond Tolstoy, right? And, you know, Tolstoy was a, 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 an icon that raised this question and, you know, that Mike raised to begin with and said, let's come back to this. And, and so we've been working this around. But if we, if we set aside Tolstoy's view and address the fundamental question that Mike and Diana and Joel and the two of you have been asking, what, how do you respond? Uh, I'm glad he asked you. <laughs> As I said, um, there's a disclaimer. <laughs> no, um, I think that I'm always suspicious of um, ideology in relation to art. Um, and I think art is such a, uh, whatever art is, which you can't even define, is so evanescent that I think to, to say that it is one thing as opposed to something else or that it should be one thing as opposed to something else I think is to undermine the, uh, the, the power and the validity of it, which I think is quite often the reason that these things are said, you know, that it's an attempt mm -hmm. to undermine mm -hmm. the validity and the, the power of it. So I'm, you know, I'm always uh, cherry around um, uh, theorists or philosophers on art. I mean, Hegel... Is, is a real um, uh, destructive force when it comes to art in the <coughs> attempt to be creative and an attempt to, to bring philosophy and, and aestheticism together. Uh, it, it really can't be done, and it's too forced. Mm -hmm. And I think it just, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if that's a response to, to what I'm hearing, mm -hmm. but that's... Yeah. Hanford, what would you add to that? Yeah, no, and, 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 and Tolstoy is uh, the, the example of a man who writes Anna Karenina and War and Peace and says they're, they're not works of art and they're failures and so on. War and Peace has that interesting feature to it uh, where, you know, you've, you've read your 983 pages or whatever it is and you think it's all over and it is beautiful at the end and then all of a sudden... Tolstoy throws this horrible afterword at you, you know, where he explains the mechanisms of the thing and his, explains his theory of history and and all the rest of it. And exactly that, it seems to me, where then, then Tolstoy just becomes, you know, what, what people say. I mean, he becomes a kind of, if not a bad, a, a kind of tedious 
expositor of Tolstoy's own work. Uh, so the the glory of this stuff, yeah, Evanescent is a beautiful word for it, you know, and and you know here's Shakespeare, four hundred years later, but it is nonetheless Evanescent. It is that thing that is. Uh, I mean, I guess for me, because I mean, one of the things I sense, Michael, is is a um, a yearning for something spiritual that you know that I think probably a lot of people in this room have. I mean, I I think I can kind of describe myself as not having such a, a side to me. But what I what I do have, you know, when I open this stuff is uh, there is there is something about the freedom. It's a privilege too. I mean I think these things are we're as privileged as Tolstoy. Um, that you know that you sit down of an afternoon and you read Hamlet and you take yourself into this deeply contemplative state. Uh, you you know you I mean I read this thing again and again and of course that one's evolution with it is 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 so marked um, and I think that's um, that's what I get. That's what art is for me. I mean, it is. It is a. Um, if it's it's it occurs or it is, for me, absorbed in those contemplative states, and and I think that's actually the most we can ask f for from it, and from ourselves. I think the question of the the shabby and horrible state of the world. Which is is a burning question, and, and you know, at a certain point, no, there's no time for you to read this. You got to go out there and you know, dig a ditch or whatever it is. Um, but I think they are completely separate activities, and, you know, unfortunately. But that's the way I see it anyway. Hanford Woods and Eric Carpellis, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. Yeah.